This episode of the Blue Hawaii Podcast contains explicit language. We try to beep it, but sometimes it doesn't work. Blue Hawaii. This episode of the Blue Hawaii Podcast is also brought to you by Homebrew in Paradise. Homebrew in Paradise. For all your beer, wine, cider, and fermented food making needs, come on down to Homebrew in Paradise, 740 Moava Street in Kulhikai. Mention the Blue Hawaii Podcast and get 10% off all starter kits and recipes, y'all. That's Homebrew in Paradise. And that's a good deal. Blue Hawaii. Did you see that the Super Bowl going to be in Atlanta? Yeah, Hotlanta, ATL. And you see they Are you got, going back? Uh, one of Atlanta's favorite people bands, favorite sons, favorite... Yes. What do you call it when it's multiple sons? Sons. Is it... But you can't say... Son, is it some Atlanta's of, favorite sons? You, they got some of Atlanta's favorite sons. Atlanta's four favorites? Five, five favorite I think sons? It's, I would assume it's the Maroon Five favorite sons. Yeah. Except I don't think they're from Atlanta. No, they're definitely not. And I don't think anybody was clamoring for them no, to play a Super Bowl like, halftime show. Outcast wasn't available. Right. Literally, literally every Ti wasn't available. Migos weren't available. Gucci Mane wasn't available. Two Chains wasn't available. Literally, young like, half the Billboard Top Forty wasn't available. Lil Yachty wasn't available. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, what the heck, guys? Well, is it going to be on CBS or Fox? Not that that really makes a difference, but at least now that uh, Les Moonves is out, you know they're not like blackballing Janet Jackson. Maybe they'll bring Janet Jackson back. Janet Jackson and Maroon 5 could be good. Better than, person... better than just Maroon 5. <laughs> yeah, God. Um, speaking of Les Moonves and men behaving badly and the next justice of the United States Supreme Court, uh, I would like to start a petition okay. that... Anybody who unironically uses the phrase "boys will be boys" uh, should be fired out of a catapult into the ocean. Are you what okay if with that? There's no ocean nearby. Just we'll need a stronger catapult. Yeah, bigger catapult. <laughs> Deal. Or any body of water. It doesn't have to be an ocean. It doesn't have to be an ocean. No. Preferable ocean, but like I kind of like the idea of engineering around the ocean problem. If, Okay, if this dude is in like Nebraska, you Low just need Earth a orbit superpower into the ocean. Okay, perfect. Well, we're gonna wait until our guest joins us uh, to talk more about Kavanaugh because uh, what's even better than a man talking about sex assault? Two men talking about sex assault. Uh, well, I mean, for all intents and purposes, we could call this show Two Men with Opinions." Instead, we call it the Blue Hawaii Podcast. Yes. Let's do the drop. Yeah. We often hear Holly meaning white person in a negative connotation. But it's a perfectly good word. It means foreign introduced to foreign origin or foreign introduction. So in Hawaiian, anyone or anything that is not native to Hawaii is haole. I'm Leilani Poliahu. Ahui ho. Haole. Haole. Haole is a perfectly good word. Welcome to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. I'm Josh Michaels. And this week was a week. Yeah. For the record books, y'all. So uh, so speaking of men with opinions, we'll get right into this. Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham and one of Trump's biggest evangelical cheerleaders. Uh, this is the, I swear to God, this is the last thing we're going to say about Kavanaugh before our guest. Uh, he says that attempted rape is not a crime. Yes, it is. And moreover, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, quote, respected Dr. Ford by, quote, not finishing. My the, wife respects me all the time. I didn't even realize it. <laughs> WWJD. Uh, Ryan, I hate to connect you to Reverend Graham, uh, but I've been thinking a lot about what you said, or what you and, excuse me, uh, you and your friend Jake talked about in Southern Story Number 2, 
uh, your experiences with the link between church and politics and American Christianity in the 21st century. Uh, and then I saw something on Twitter that triggered me because I am a liberal snowflake. Okay. Um, so Allie Beth Stuckey, she's a conservative, I don't know if commentator, not really pundit, more like comedian personality. Um, like a literal comedian? Because I'm, I'm not familiar with this woman not at this like point. A, not like a little, but she makes like funny videos, but also like talks about more serious stuff, I guess, okay. on like CRTV or one of those conservative okay. websites. Uh, you may have, listeners, you may have seen her in that viral video where she faked an interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a bunch of everybody like right people, right, the right was like, we finally have a right-leaning comedian. We got those libs. We oh, got them finally. Gosh. And all the li- and the leftists were like, ah! and it was just, it was, you know, we're about 20 years late to the uh, fake interview with a politician thing. Sure. Stephen Colbert mastered that field, but. That's not that's not why I'm talking about her. She I she tweeted, I saw she tweeted, quote, identity politics and the gospel can't coexist, and pastors should preach the gospel of Christ rather than the gospel of racial reconciliation. So I know that whenever I hear identity politics, I now immediately go to uh Clay Travis and the stick to sports crowd or Jordan Peterson and all these YouTube intellectuals throwing out big trigger words for the right wing like postmodernism and cultural marxism uh what do you think and what and you know admittedly i don't know the context of why she was tweeting this but this is something i'm sure you've heard before yeah i mean that's that's really the the basis for a lot of the rights evangelical arguments i mean look look at like arguments against racial intermarriage like they say oh it's in the bible you can't you know intermarry because of some verse taken out of context Mm -hmm. from two and a half thousand years ago but um it's really well number one it's wrong because we have a problem where we first need to separate race from ethnicity race is a social construct it's something that people just make up based on a phenotypical trait ethnicity is something that you're born with and it's something that you can't really fake like uh racially you are white, mm-hmm. but ethn- ethnically, you are Irish or Jewish or all these other things. Um, in the ancient world, there was a probably, yeah, there was racism, but ethnic ethnic differences were more apparent as yeah. there are now, right? And, and so she would point to, I guess she and people along this line point to uh, St. Paul, St. Paul's letter, like under Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. Yeah. So like, yeah, colorblind, everybody's in, boom, 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 nothing to worry about, proceed. Yeah, but then if you look at somebody like, you know, Jesus. Um, A swarthy, brown-skinned Middle Eastern man. Yeah, he, he actively tried to heal the divides between ethnicities. I mean, uh, he shows incredible love and grace to a Samaritan woman. Uh, the Samaritans are like the lowest of the low. You cannot divorce the message of Jesus from the message of racial reconciliation because that's who he was. And looking at that letter from Paul under one context, it seems to support the ideas of racial segregation and you know color blindness. But looking at it from another perspective, it seems to mandate reconciliation. To, because clearly, like if you look around in the world, there are very much still these distinctions. Yeah, so, absolutely. So Paul and Jesus are actually calling on you to make the world as you want it to be, right? I don't I don't know if Paul was so much doing it. Yeah. I believe more that Jesus was. I Paul is just like the hype man. Paul is well, Paul is a he was pretty ascetic and 
he was also a, I think he was also a stoic too. So he was like, he was more just like, I don't care what you do, just yeah. believe in Jesus. And, and a former hardcore uh, zealot, Jewish zealot himself. Yeah. Well, sp- sp- speaking of identity politics, did you see the uh, "America Needs to Own the South" article on Zocalo Public Square? I did. Tell us about it. So uh, it was a guy named James C. Cobb, a professor emeritus of history at University of Georgia in Athens, uh, talked about how. Um, America has used the South as a sort of scapegoat for all its worst um, desires and inhibitions and sort of set it up as a straw man to be what it is. Really interestingly, he starts off by talking about how the South slavery financed New England's growth. It's They did that at the same time that New England was actively disparaging the South for being this backward place and this... Uh, this you know wild west and you know how undignified and then if you look to current times like that's really what's happening now i mean uh, the wealth centers of the country disproportionately benefit from slave and undignified wage labor um, while belaboring the point about how backward other regions of the world including the south are i mean everybody on the west coast that works in tech production like Mm -hmm. my iphone i'm holding right now was made i know by slave labor yeah and it puts you in a really weird position because you don't want to support that but look i mean look at nike yeah exactly. look, how, look how like oh look how uh, just and forward-thinking nike Absolutely. is unless you're an indonesian child exactly in the factory yeah yeah so it's like that dichotomy has always been there um but he talks about you know he gets into talking about how as far back as the 1790s the South was sort of depicted as uh, America's Latin America, a sort of, his quote, uh, a sort of like swampy, disease-ridden region motivated by lust and gluttony, uh, which, you know, all of America now appears yeah. to be that. The world is the world is sort of motivated by lust and gluttony. Right? right? And, well, and then what he was trying, the point he was trying to make is that led to a type of, of othering, is yeah. the term he uses. Um, basically, if, if the South is all these things that are so awful then that creates a lot of space for people in New England to be all the things that are good. Mm-hmm. And we've definitely seen that dynamic continue. Yeah. Um, so basically the South is set up as like an antithesis of what America is supposed to be. Um, even though it's more radical ideas, things like secession were actually ideas that were born yeah. in New England and first proposed by New Englanders. And, and we got a lot of contradictory ideas like the South, if you know, if you polled, if you polled people's opinions and their behaviors, they were probably, they could be described as the most, like overtly patriotic region sure but you know they also have everything in the aftermath of the, their civil war loss you know the lost cause sure still displaying confederate pride the confederate statues yeah they're talking about how like the ideas of southern nationalism which you know the south will rise again and mm-hmm. the battle flag of the republic and all this stuff um that was all born out of an attempt to restore masculine pride mm-hmm. among southern white men yeah after well, their defeat life in is, civil war life is bad but at least we're not black yeah well no and then if you think about it in the 1910s 20s 30s that's when the statues came up that's they didn't come up in the immediate aftermath of the civil war they came up as a means of social control during jim crow and what's funny is how that precipitated what we see now where how many things are created to um attempt to restore masculine pride among white men and that's like that's a that's a dynamic that has obviously persisted for at least the better part of 100 years yeah likely 150 and it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. More on that in a minute when we talk about Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing Woo! with our guest, Hawaii Delilah. Yeah. Let's throw some interesting numbers into uh, this discussion about conservatism, Christianity, the South. 
Um, Ross Duthat, 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 I don't know. No one knows. Uh, D o u t h a t. The uh, the New York Times token conservative Catholic opinion writer uh, had an article: Conservatism after Christianity. A new survey reveals the Republican Party's religious divide. Uh, quote: The differences were particularly striking on race. For instance, a quarter of Trump voters who never attend church describe being white as very important to their identity. For the most frequent churchgoers, it was only nine percent. Among non-church-going Trump voters. Only 48% had warm feelings toward black people compared to 71% of weekly churchgoers and the same sort of pattern held for views of Hispanics, Asians, and Jews. Interestingly, in the survey, the different groups make about the same amount of money, which cuts against the strict economic anxiety explanations for Trumpism, which we've known from the beginning. It's way more than economic anxiety um, alone. But the, the churchgoers and non-churchgoers differ more in social capital. The irreligious are less likely to have college degrees, less likely to be married, more likely to be divorced. They're also less civically engaged, less satisfied with their neighborhoods and communities, and less trusting and optimistic in general. So all that said, Ryan, my question for you, and to Miss to Miss Stuckey's point, do you think talking about identity in church will make all that better or make it all worse or it'll, neutral? It'll make it all worse at first. I mean, it's, you know, for all the, all the numbers that were thrown out, like, evangelical Christians still overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Right. I mean, it's not, as long as evangelical Christians have their intellectual hands tied. I don't believe, for what it's worth, I don't believe Miss Stuckey voted for Trump. As long as evangelical Christians have their, their hands tied by the idea of abortion yeah. and that abortion is a is a single issue that cannot be... Um, compromised? Cannot be compromised, cannot be discussed, cannot be um, intelligently debated. Right. And... Also, as long as the Democrats are refusing to run people who have differing views on abortion, right. um, no, it's going to make things harder. It's going to make things way worse. But the problem is, is things are already pretty bad in evangelical churches. I mean, the the bottom can't be that far down. I mean, we already, we have all these people who say being white isn't important to them, but they voted for a white nationalist. They have all these people who say being white isn't important to them, but they live in white enclaves we have all these people who say being white isn't important to them but they keep people out of their spaces so it's like if you look at any major evangelical church in this country any mega church you look at the racial divide between leadership between the people who even not just the pastors but you know the overseers not just the overseers but the people who are uh the people who are part of the leadership even above them or you look at even who's represented on stage on like a worship team who gets up there and plays music it's almost all all white upper middle class people with perfect smiles uh thin bodies hipster haircuts and conveying the sense of like faux authenticity that sort of tells you as we got into in the southern story with jake this sort of tells you that if you just lean into these conservative ideas enough then your life too will be like this. You will be this thin, beautiful, hip person who has this life full of smiling and laughter. And a trust fund. And a trust fund. Well, I don't know. I don't think trust funds are as prevalent, but... um, Maybe in the high leadership, right? Maybe. I the big bank rollers? No, I don't think so. I I think people are... I mean, a lot of... You you know, you mentioned... the the I, I can't remember the Church of the Highlands. Church of the Highlands. They have yeah. you know you mentioned big financial muscle behind. Yeah, them. huge. Yeah, huge. Now the, but but the thing is, is a lot of those people. I mean, it's not trust funds. What you're as you're thinking about it, it's not kids who like go party in the Bahamas on their parents' private jet. It's yeah. like it's people whose parents make 
probably adjusted for inflation, what we should all make. It's like they make 400 grand a year living in Alabama, which just so happens to mean that, you know, you have 200 grand a year of disposable income, even after you've bought everything your heart could desire. It's not like, it's not like they're, you know, like Vassar college, like stockbroker type kids flying around in helicopters. It's like, you know, we drive a, a new car every three years. Not like, it's it's not it's it's different than like like right. coastal elitism, right, which is right, how right. they segment themselves. Right. Now, the, now to, to I guess my question, you know, your point taken, the twenty, I guess the seventy one percent of churchgoers who say, you know, I have favorable views of everybody. I don't I don't dispute that. I don't believe they think. For the people who say being white is not important to them, however, we're in the scenario. Is it sort of it's is it unconscious? Is it just is it like the is it like the intellectual dark web thing where people who are comfortable with the status quo invested in the status quo just don't see the issue they don't see a problem with the way things are yeah you know i was thinking about this a lot this morning uh in the shower before i even read our show notes and i think what has happened is that the conservative movement over a period of years has convinced its followers that everybody really is equal and the reason that's important is because if you can do that you mean everybody is already equal yeah is yeah. that if you can do that that everybody's on on the level playing field has the same chance at life gets the same outcomes under the law that there really is no difference then what you can do is marginalize your own group and use everyone else as the foil for you. Democrats are the real racists. Exactly. Because all they care about is You get things like the hardest thing to be in America right now is a white man, which is objectively, empirically, completely false. But it's really important to that narrative because if everyone's not equal, then you as the majority race have responsibility to not bully people into doing what you want. Yeah. And Because everybody knows, everybody knows, regardless of what you think about you know conservatism liberalism everybody knows you're not supposed to bully people but the bully has to have that's that's trump's that's that's trumpism in a nutshell it comes down to power and bullying well the thing is though is what trump has acted on is he's casted himself as i'm the champion for everybody who's already equal and getting bullied and rather than like being really honest with ourselves and saying actually white people do have it easier what they're saying is, no, I don't have it easier, yeah. and that's why now I can do this. Yeah. I can treat you this way. I can say this thing. I can be this angry yeah. because if I was actually already above you, yeah. then I'm just being a hole. When, when they, yeah, I think you make a great point when you know when we think about uh, the 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 quote the bullying or the disparities that people of color face. You know, uh, look in the prison system, look in the legal, sure. system, the criminal justice system. For white people, it's well, the Emmys said a lot of really mean things yeah. about, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yes, like, your feelings can, like, feelings can be hurt, for sure. Those, like, you can feel like, man, Hollywood is just shitting on me 24-7. But, like, in the big picture, can you see how it's hard for me to be super sympathetic about that? Yeah, and well, and I, I think, I think if we're looking, you know, 50 years, 100 years down the road, yeah. what happens if culturally being white isn't the best currency? I mean, because historically it hasn't always been. I mean, it has been for the last epoch, yeah. but... Well, people like, you know, con- uh, conservatives who, you know, preached, uh, we're already all equal, the colorblindness, people like, you know, I've heard, uh, like Ben Shapiro makes the argument. And in fairness to Ben Shapiro, I, I saw something that, you know, of all the 
Nazi shit on Twitter during 2016. Ben Shapiro received by far the most anti-Semitic blah 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 blah. So sure. so this is you know not I'm not I'm not putting him in with the right, but his argument is the more that everybody who's not white goes on with identity politics, you know, my my struggle as a black person, my struggle as a as a woman of color, my struggle as LGBT. White people are going to see well. Then I'm getting into white identity politics. I'm gonna, you know, this is pushing me to the alt right, and that's the big cautionary tale that conservative intellectuals are saying. Well, and there, and there's, it's gonna be like I, it may be a spurious argument, but there's still an argument to be made for that. That like we've talked about it before is whenever you start at a, you start from you know having ten units of power just to break it down to like a math argument, and then somebody comes along and through. Uh, equal representation asks for units of your power or takes them yeah, by it voting. It feels like you're being discriminated it against. It feels like you're being discriminated against. As two, as two white people who are trying to figure out how to get there, I guess. I know. I look forward to the come day on, whenever, on, yeah. whenever we have to say, hey, lay off white people. <laughs> but that day is not anytime soon. Well, you know, I mean, as, as, uh, as people have been blasting on Facebook, I think of my one friend who commented on you know tpusa's like white privilege is a myth, myth changed my mind he said and he took a photo he said the fact that you can sit here with that sign is proof that white privilege is a, is, is a real thing and everybody jumping in on him said like what in hawaii i don't get anything because of the color blah, 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 blah. I was getting, hawaii is the most racist place i've ever lived like you know it's hard to be white like it's harder <laughs> to be white in hawaii than probably still, any other state in the country right but it's still all things considered pretty dang easy yeah it'd be way harder to be black yeah we talked about that before. Yeah, we did. We talked. Okay, so speaking of you know, not to and not to go on about TPUSA, but let's shift to Hawaii news, um, talking about f- changing the status quo. Uh, um, the CONCON. Yes, the CONCON. Yeah, that's for those of you who don't speak uh, abbreviation. That is the Constitutional Convention that is uh, people are advocating for having. Yeah. Um, basically. It provides an opportunity for the state as a whole to make wholesale changes to Hawaii's constitution um, using, ideally, a mixture of um, non-elected officials, people who just are, you know, community advocates, activists, things like that, to really get an opportunity to make to make some needed changes. Yeah, and you know, listeners, this is something people have been asking us to get into. To you know, uh, there's a lot of questions out there a lot of not misinformation but a a lack of information in general because you know we have such a not very engaged voting populace um civil beat had an article and i found it very persuasive the the civil beat editorial board published a state constitutional convention let's have the conversation and i'll just skim some of the key quotes um Past conventions have been successful. In 1968, it established the right to collective bargaining for public employee unions. The convention in 1978 proved to be a breakthrough for Native Hawaiian rights and environmental protections, and a new generation of leaders emerged from it. Some people are afraid those gains from previous conventions could be reversed if we had another one. That's a particularly defeatist viewpoint. The ultimate irony threaded through the opposition is the fear that delegates to a constitutional convention will be unduly influenced by special interests. Can't imagine that happening in Hawaii. That, after all, is a fear already realized in our mostly members for life legislature. Are things running well enough? Maybe, if you're looking down from a luxury condo. Maybe not, if you're among the many island residents who can't easily afford the basic necessities of life. Some people fear the uncertainty of a constitutional convention. We fear the certainty of a status quo. And that's... That's that resonated the size of it. That resonated with me, yeah, um, for sure. Um, it's unsustainable where yeah. we're going, and 
If nothing else, the people deserve an opportunity to have a say in what their future looks like. So we'll be talking more about this. Um, other Two other brief Hawaii news items. Uh, former UH Wahine volleyball standout, 2003 National Player of the Year, Kim Willoughby, uh, was indicted for murdering her three-year-old daughter in Puerto Rico. That's the saddest That's thing. That's crazy, insane, wild. Jeez, um, shocking. And then uh, something, get, uh, we're getting out in front of this. Um, hashtag the Howleys are at it again. Uh, I saw a, in my, in my wife's most recent issue of Food Network magazine, I saw the following blurb. And by the way, I read Food Network art magazine for the articles. <laughs> uh, the Legend of Hollowayan, starring role. Star Wars lead Mark Hamill is getting into the baking business, at least on screen. His latest role is a cameo in a full-length animated movie produced by King's Hawaiian. The company, famous for its sweet rolls, worked with fresh-baked films on The Legend of Hollowayan. It's supposed to be like Halloween and Hawaiian mixed yeah, together. Which follows three kids, looking at the photo, it's three white kids, oh no. Three kids who defend the Hawaiian Islands against a pineapple-headed monster on Halloween night. That's actually a real problem that we face here is defending ourselves from pineapple-headed monsters. For theater dates monsters. and locations, visit Hawaiian.com. Can't imagine it's uh, playing this here. Is gonna, this is going to be something. Maybe it will. Actually, what if it plays here and it does amazing? I could see that happening, too. People, Hawaii people, do, I mean, I feel like people will see this movie because people in Hawaii love Hawaii stuff. And there's also going to be a number of fully correct and full of righteous anger uh, Twitter threads and commentary about, oh, sure. about how problematic it is. And, it, you know, two things can be true. Um, so before we get to our guests... We have... Back. It's time. We're doing it again. For Bicky Leaks. Someone slid into our DMs and sent us the following. The GOP Hawaii is having an internal meltdown. Oh, no! Their finance chair resigned out of the blue, and he'd been payrolling the person who ran their social media. Also... Uh, during Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens' visit to Hawaii. Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens of We're Stupid, Please Don't Listen to Us fame. Toilet Paper USA. GOP people went to meet Candace Owens at the airport, this being her first time here. And they got curved. Her sh- she and her team had already Ubered to their hotel. They're like, we ain't gonna ride with y'all. Oh, but did you see? So in the aftermath, I saw some photos. The Hawaii GOP chairwoman posing with both of them. She's gone full troll, talking about, oh, it's great to get into that safe space and... and Show these Bernie Kratz and snowflakes at UH. What's up? Like, I'm sure that's going to earn you a lot of votes. The right? safe space that they access to use as a free speech zone, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so it's a shame because from what we've heard, you know, out of Puho no Owai and I, people said Andrea Tapola is the only one who cares about this community. Uh, from what we've heard, she's she's really active in her community, like doing. She seems like a good person with just really bad politics. Yeah. And. If this is the direction they want to take her, tough. That debate should be interesting. Well, uh, they had a debate the other night, and Governor Ige declined to participate. Did they? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. Oh, hmm. why is he running, Uncle <laughs> Uncle David? Get out there, man. Yeah, you got to. I mean, all you got to do is say, "Do you still support Donald Trump?" Yeah. And when she says yes, that's it. You've won. Yeah. You just like say, that's that's some free advice for you, Governor Ige. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, let's take a quick pause. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with our dear friend. A genuine Twitter celebrity. Celebrita. At Hawaii Delilah. Coming soon. More in a minute. Blue Hawaii Podcast. Blue Hawaii. Welcome back to the show. Our guest joining us this morning via Skype is Delilah Australis. You may know her as at Hawaii Delilah on Twitter. Uh, in her professional life, 
She writes about international affairs for a living, but in her private life, she mostly tweets about U.S. politics, especially national politics, from the perspective of a partisan progressive Democrat and diehard Obamacrat. Uncle Barry, we miss you. We miss you so much. Her career specializes in analyzing international affairs. Her activism covers racial justice, reproductive rights, healthcare reform, immigration reform, and supporting Democratic candidates up and down the ballot. And she's also easily bribed with Redbreast's Irish Whiskey or Hope and Grace Pinot Noirs. Delilah Astralis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Aloha. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right in and talk about healthcare. Okay. You had a very serious tweet thread earlier this week. Um, I'll just quote one. Uh, At the end of the day, and a day like today, when my doctor called me to tell me my biopsy results came back benign, I'm all for pathways to universal affordable health care. Yeah, that's... This is uh, an issue near and dear to you. Tell us about it. Yeah, I I mean, I I have to say that I... I really appreciate um, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. I was a huge advocate of it. I continue to be. I think it is, you know, the the obviously the the signature accomplishment of um, the last great president of the United States, and it benefits all of us. Um, and it benefited me, obviously. Um, you know, the the thing is, though, and I, I think I covered this over Twitter. Uh, the fact of the matter is that I'm I'm neither rich nor poor. I um I I really am in that in between uh, place where I don't qualify for health for um, healthcare subsidies, but I'm not in the category of people who are um, rich enough to write a check or for for a copay or a deductible without missing a beat. And so, um, despite the fact that I have good health care coverage. And because of that good health care coverage, I was able to have all the testing that I needed to have to, uh, that I needed to have done this um, the, the past month or so. The fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, I, I live in a place that's very expensive to live in. I have, you know, I have a mortgage to pay. I live in an expensive state. I can't afford to be sick. I can't afford to have serious health care problems. And um, the ACA and, and Obamacare um, is great, but we need to build upon that. We need to do more so that it is not just access to health care for everyone, but also affordable health care for everyone. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm not... A, I'm not. Um, I'm not going to die on the hill of Medicare for all. Although I support it absolutely, I'm for all pathways to getting to universal, affordable health care. I know you're a supporter of uh, Senator Schatz's proposal to have a buy-in to Medicaid. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I. Um, and again, you know, I'm I support the Medicare for for all options. You know, um, it has it has bipartisan it has sorry, not bipartisan, but it has almost uh, majority support in the House. You know, uh, and and it has support in the Senate. But this is an alternative way, perhaps. Um, you know, a bridge option uh, in terms of expanding upon uh, the ACA. And so Brian Schatz's, um, Senator Brian Schatz, or, or Hawaii Brian Schatz's program or uh, proposed Medicare buy-in, uh, it really is a public option delivered through the Medicaid uh infrastructure, if you will. So, you know, he's uh, what, what he's advocating for is high quality, low cost public health insurance um, that would be offered on a state's exchange. And so residents, regardless of income, um, would have the option to buy into the state's Medicaid health insurance plan. 
this is a very practical solution to the problem. I'm not saying that it comes with um, without problems of its own because it still is state-based. And so the, uh, there would be options for red states, for example, to um, opt out of it. So there are limits where that's concerned. That being said, there are positive benefits because you would have something that uh, is competing with private insurance. And so you'd have increased affordable options. Yeah, you know, uh, when I was growing up, like where I'm from in Alabama, um, there is no competition, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield's the only game in town. And um, they've done a number of things, you know, legislatively through lobbying um, that have really sort of obfuscated uh, the true nature of what their business is. I mean, they passed a law saying that executives don't have to disclose compensation. They don't have to talk about their profit margins. They don't have to show that they're actually working on behalf of the, uh, the of their members, despite the fact that they're, you know, essentially a monopoly. Um, right. And all of this has led to higher prices. You know, everything's more expensive across the board. Um, so, like, my wife is an example. Like, when we were dating, she was paying for health insurance at a company. She was paying $700 a month, and she still had, you know, a $50 copay. She still had, you know, an, an outrageous deductible. Um, the, 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 you know, the free market, they're not running a charity. Like, it, it doesn't make sense for them to do things just out of the goodness of their heart because they have this this greed uh exactly this greed motivation that's that's always pushing them towards you know how do i charge people more while paying out less yeah and hawaii you know we're fortunate that we've been ahead of the game we've had uh, employer mandated health insurance for for a long time um but we've seen you know in other states especially red states you know they'll they'll cut they'll block the medicaid expansion just despite just for political reasons, which is what I mean, Alabama did. You know, they're they're trying to make people hate Obama, and it didn't really work. I mean, people at the end of the day just liked their health care, but yeah, I mean, you had red states holding their citizens hostage by denying them health care just to score political points. Right, right. I mean, the fact of the matter is that in in my particular case, I um, as you know, some of my my followers might know, you know, I I. I, my home is Maui in Hawaii, but you know I work a lot on the mainland, and so I'm in my particular case, I'm 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 basically getting my my healthcare individually, and so as a result of that, you know uh, I'm kind of in the same position where. Uh, and I may be able to have access to healthcare, but then you're paying a lot of money, and in addition to paying a lot of money, you're still fighting with, um, with, with you know, for the the amount of coverage that the insurance company is willing to pay for you for a procedure. And so, you know, I, I, I keep saying this. I've said this on Twitter uh, um, repeatedly, and I really, you know, I'm not being sarcastic. I actually mean it. I can, I'm convinced the Republicans either want to kill me or bankrupt me. And I have I have no shortage of pre-existing conditions. I have I mean even before this cancer scare that I had uh, last year I spent you know a, a week in the hospital because I have heart valve issues. You know that's that's on my record. It's there. It's it, you know it's a real thing. It's a serious problem that I grapple with every single day anyway. And so um, and so the you know I've got a pre pre-existing condition. I literally cannot afford to live in a red state. I have to live in a blue state because I need to know that, that that at least the state government will protect some of the regulatory reforms that were instituted by, by Obamacare. And let's not forget your biggest pre-existing condition of all, being a woman, because you know that in and of itself is something that health insurance companies do not want to have to pay out for. Exactly. I'm a, a Yes, being a woman and still in her reproductive years, it's a pre it was a pre-existing condition. Uh, the the insanity of it. But yes, exactly. 
Exactly. I mean, insurance companies are not in business to help you. They do not care about you. They no. care about maximizing their profits. Yeah, I mean, they they only make money, again, if they don't pay, they make money. Yeah. The best way yes. for them to make money is to deny you care. So when you think, I need to see the doctor or I need surgery and how expensive this is, well, Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, their CEO needs another yacht. So uh, they don't give us. Oh, no. Cigna has, you know, the Cigna CEOs, they have kids to put through college. Like, they could care less if you need a new kidney. Yeah, they it, friggin' United or Anthem, they they have they don't care about the individual person. They no, care about bonuses. Not at all. And just like uh we've seen this we've seen this in medicine, we see this in education, we see this in the criminal justice system. Anytime you put the profit incentive in there, it gets away from a government helping its people and it becomes Right. I mean, the insurance companies are there to make the most money by providing the least amount of care as possible. And that's, you know, that's like a fatal flaw in the entire system as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, like me personally, like I'd be happy to pay that $700 a month that we were paying back in Alabama if it meant that all of my procedures would be covered from now on and I didn't have to worry about paying a deductible. Well, this is, you know, the reason we have the 30th worst or 30th best healthcare outcomes, but our system is 10 times more expensive than every other developed country in the world, is because we're subsidizing all the people who need to make money off of your healthcare. Exactly. I, I mean, exactly. I, I mean, I, I feel precisely the same way. But you never, you know, you've got these astronomical deductibles and copies, and after a while, you know, how do you budget in your life for that if you're not a millionaire? I, 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 I mean, it just escapes me. Now let's pivot to something a little less depressing. Uh, get out the vote. So you've been working to increase voter participation across the country in both uh, blue states and in red states. To protect healthcare from being further destroyed. Yeah, so would you mind telling us a little bit about that, like kind of what you're doing and how you're getting involved? Well, I've, um, I'm, I'm, go I'm gonna volunteer to, and I have been doing this to make calls. I give donations regularly. Um, you know, I'm not a rich person, but I still do what I can do to contribute to key candidates. Um, and, and then of course, uh, in terms of, uh, because I live in a safe district in a safe state, what I'm actually also doing is adopting um, swing districts and doing what I can to help flip those. You know, we need to win at least 23, 24 seats in the House. And so, you know, that's absolutely crucial. We got to do what we need to do. You know, there are, um, I, I see, I, I see the predictions in 538. I read what's in the Cook reports. I see what's on, you know, Larry Sabato's crystal ball in terms of his uh, analysis. I know that there's a, there's a lot of hopefulness about, um, about uh, shifting control of the house, and I really want that, but I don't think that we can count on any uh, on anything. And frankly, after 2016, I have a lot of trepidation about what what can and actually happen. What can actually happen? People actually have to show up to vote. Yeah, because we know that the Republicans and everybody watching Fox News is going to show up. They they turn out. They are energized. That's exactly right. And this is you know this is a long-standing problem. You know, Republicans do show up to vote. And our side doesn't. And so we we have to, you know, people say, you know, uh, it's not good to be angry, but actually being outraged can be motivational. So I think if people aren't outraged. Yeah, by I mean, Republicans have been writing the outrage politics for 35 years. Right. So I want to ask you, I mean, you're obviously very knowledgeable, very plugged in, but have you always been a political person? Because like me personally, you know, 
I do this political podcast, but uh, I didn't care anything about politics. Josh can tell you when I met him, I didn't know anything about politics other than I thought the Tea Party and Ted Cruz were like the stupidest people in the world. Um, but I feel like the stakes are so high right now that we can't afford to not be plugged in. Uh, like, are you kind of in that same boat or has, has this always been something that you've been concerned with? So I'm going to age myself a little bit here because I'm not a millennial. I'm a generation Xer, but I, I have always, I have always been a, a political animal just to give you a little background about myself. You know, when I was quite a bit younger, I was obsessed about Middle East peace. So, you know, I was, I literally sat on my floor in the living room and watched the funeral for, a, and I was quite young, very, very young. And I watched the Anwar Sadat uh, funeral and I watched Menachem Begin wa walk through the streets of Cairo and it did something to my consciousness. You know, um, I, you know, it was years after the invasion of Grenada. Um, it was a coup that uh, ousted Maurice Bishop from power. And um, I, even though that had happened years before, I wrote this, um, this, this, essay um, comparing Hamlet, you know, uh, to what happened to Maurice Bishop, and then uh, incorporating the Grenadian angle to it. And so I wrote it for school, got really great grades on it, then I modified it to a letter and sent it to the um, to the letters to, to the newspaper as a, you know, letter to the editor, and it was published. Um, so I've always been kind of a political animal. It's just who I am. And uh, it's now amplified because of everything that's going on. I, I've gone through stages of being outraged before, you know, I, I remember the, the Bush years. And although we do go through a certain amount of hagiography now, because, you know, we think that the Bush years, oh, you know, you, you'll hear people say, oh, I would welcome Bush back, that kind of thing. I mean, let, let's not forget the Bush years were still pretty damn bad. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, there were lots of things that were done environmentally. There were lots of things that were done, you know, in terms of, you know, of course, uh, the Supreme Court, that's like one reason to, to vote blue right there, right? I mean, there were there are placements on the Supreme Court, and then there was, of course, the 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 worst foreign policy decision in modern history, which was you know the Iraq War. So there was a lot of damage that was done then. I probably spent about eight years in a complete depression because of that. And so, yeah, I've always been a political animal. Well, then of course, you know, we can't forget the biggest problem that Bush caused, which is the economic collapse. Yes, I mean. Uh, the worst economic situation since the Great Depression. Yeah. It happened because of the U.S. banks. It yeah. happened because of deregulation. Yes. And it directly led to people like Trump, like Orban, like Erdogan, like Putin. Like uh, Duterte. Duterte. Like Duterte. Yeah. Um, guys like that who are who are riding this wave of populism and this economic uh economic anxiety argument yeah. that made people think, you know, maybe democracy isn't something worth protecting if this is right. what can happen to us. And we have to remember that all of this happened under Bush. Yeah, and we're, we're, I can't believe that we lived through that and we haven't learned the lessons of um, the problems that come with, deregula with deregulation. I, it, it's shocking to me that we're back to where we were before. I mean, Obama, for all his pluses, we, we have to remember, was a centrist technocrat. I didn't mean, he, prosecute Wall Street, didn't no. prosecute the Iraq war criminals. No. Eric Holder, you know, who walked into a, like, cushy... Uh, K Street. Yeah, exactly, like blocked him from going after basically his future colleagues well and you know at some level you can't blame him because there is an issue with you know wondering hey the world's already so unstable we have right. to pre prevent a total collapse and a power vacuum so it's like i i kind of get it like i get the the tough decision he was facing it sucks but but it sucks it absolutely <laughs> yeah. sucks and all of that 
you know, empowered what we have now, right. which is the situation where uh, these people who screwed over the entire world um, also made so much money out of it that they now have money to burn on, you know, lobbying and uh, dumping money back towards things like what billionaires care about, yeah, the tax which cuts. is tax cuts. But the interesting thing is I think polling is suggesting that people are finally starting to understand that this most recent tax cut was not a tax cut to help everybody. This was explicitly a giveaway exactly. to the richest portion of the country and specifically those politically involved, politically connected, people like Sheldon Adelson who got a nine-figure tra- tax cut, turned around, gave $30 million to Senate Democrats, excuse, to Senate Republicans, $30 million to House Republicans uh, for more to push for more tax cuts. Yeah. Is the, the, the rich and powerful are looking out for themselves first and, and foremost. Democrats have to seize on that. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear, and this is, and I really hope that Democrats are going to campaign on this tax scam because it's an insult to all of us as voters, and we know it, you know. Uh, and so I think that, as well as healthcare, are two big issues that really Democrats need to be campaigning on. To come back to a point that you made about young people um, not voting or you know not being interested, I do think though that some of um, there has to be some emphasis from candidates on issues issues that are of importance to young people. And um, for example, you know, there's been studies that have been done, Sean McElwee and Data for, for Progress have done this w- with regard to the environment. It, you know, it's a huge salient issue for young people, for millennials. And generally speaking, even the Democratic Party does not foreground this. They don't discuss this, you know, it's an aside, but not a central thrust. And I think that if we discuss that more forthrightly and really mobilize voters on the basis of that, I think you would get more young people uh, coming out to 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 vote. So I, I think also tailoring the message so that it it does have salience and it is germane to the lives of young people, so that they have a sense of investment in it. I think that would make a difference. Speaking of outrage, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is now nominated to the mm-hmm. Supreme yeah. Court. Um, he is obviously a very controversial figure. Uh, the crusade against him has been in no small part led by both Hawaii senators, but specifically uh, Senator Maisie Hirono. Yeah. Um, old Cocaine Mitch says that, you know, no matter what happens, uh, he's just going to plow through and confirm Kavanaugh. Uh, you'd think that uh, he would take the consent thing a little bit more seriously. Ooh. Slate had a really good uh, quote on this. It said, you know, it's a remarkable fact of American life that hordes of men are now defending sexual assault. It's not immediately clear why. It seems like the very definition of unforced error. But a substantial group of them, many in politics, have taken to the internet to argue that a 17-year-old football player should get to do as he likes to a 15-year-old girl. Say, for example, trap her in a bedroom, violently attempt to remove her clothes, and cover her mouth to muffle her screams without consequences to a life or reputation. This locker room, once invoked to normalize Trump's language, every man talks his way behind closed doors, has expanded into a locked American bedroom with a woman trapped inside. It's all in good fun, defenders declare horseplay but here's the most surprising part they've launched this peculiar defense despite the fact that the accused party denies it ever happened so uh this is where the the two men are going to shut up and we're going to uh listen to a woman tell us about what this means and and how we should react and respond well you know the 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 to, the point there is that Kavanaugh is expressly saying it never happened the the defenders are tacitly admitting that perhaps it did, but that it's perfectly normal. 
And I think what we're seeing here is, you know, overall, this normalization of the worst excesses, the, the worst behavior. I mean, I, it, it, and it's not accidental because you go all the way back. And I, I think I look at the trajectory and I think you have a president who was elected despite the fact that he is a self confessed uh you know predator you know i he you know we know this about him and yet he was elected and and it's not just men who voted for him although it's overwhelming you know 53 percent of white women also voted for him even knowing all of that and now you have this person who is in power and they have selected uh um kavanaugh who has these allegations against him and and to be fair it's not just you know um it's not just the the attempted rape it's you know uh, you know we know from Senator Leahy's um, uh, statements during uh, the the confirmation hearings that there's also perjury. So he's a known perjurer. We, we, we know these things. And we also know that Kavanaugh on the record does not believe that uh, a president necessarily um, should be brought to justice. Um, and so we have all of these different layers of a wholly ill-equipped and unfit person for the Supreme Court. And yet, despite all of that, you there, there you have cocaine Mitch, as you call him, you know, basically saying it doesn't matter what you say, we're going to ram this through anyway. And this person is going to be on the Supreme Court. And then you're going to have a Supreme Court with two people sitting on it with credible sexual harassment or abuse or, you know, uh, um, attack allegations against them. As a woman, it's galling. It's galling to me as a woman. Yeah. And, you know, I, I saw one of our friends on on uh, Twitter, Facebook. Her name's Sarah Elizabeth Dill. She's a partner at Anthem Global, uh, a very uh, good international attorney. Bring up the fact that you know every attorney who sits for the bar exam—that's that's you know the process to be licensed as an attorney—you have to undergo what's called a character and fitness report, and they ask everything. I mean, they ask your address when you were five years old, and if you were wrong, uh, they can hold it against you as being dishonest. Now. If Kavanaugh would have been reported, if this would have come out sooner, this guy, not only would he not be considered for the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in the most developed and most prestigious and prosperous country in the world, he wouldn't have even been able to been he wouldn't have been able to even sit for the bar exam. This guy wouldn't have never been an attorney. He never would have been a judge. He never would have had any chance of being where we are today. You know, I and it's sort of a preclusive thing where it's like, well, Let's just look at it from that perspective, not the, you know, should this guy be held responsible for something he did when he was 17? That's obviously a complicated issue, and none of us want to be held responsible for what we did when we were 17. Uh, I didn't rape anybody when I was 17. Well, I didn't either. Uh, But at the same time, like, you still need to, we all have to recognize whatever side of the conversation you're on that this guy should never have even been an attorney, should never have been allowed to sit for the bar exam. Exactly. I, I actually want to also note that, you know, on the age issue, I think that the, I think that I want to sort of overlay that with the reality that a lot of the same people who think that something that happened when Kavanaugh was 17 should not be held against him are the same people that are perfectly fine with prosecuting young black youth for things as adults. 
you know, and so you, you, you're, they're perfectly fine going after a young black guy and ruining his life for the, you know, having, you know, no chance for a future. But God forbid that you do, that you hold, you know, a young white kid accountable for what he might have done wrong. And, and then in addition to that, I also want to mention that, you know, so then you end up on the Supreme Court with somebody who probably will, given the record, which again, Senator Jamezi Hirono all highlighted during confirmation hearings, by a guy who will probably then get to regulate the reproductive rights of women. I mean, if this doesn't outrage women, I don't know what will. It's, it's, it's absolutely abhorrent to me. It's absolutely abhorrent. It's unacceptable to me. You know, you raise an, an excellent point talking about uh, double standards for black 17-year-olds. Do- President Donald Trump took out a full-page ad in the New York Times calling for the execution of the Central Park Five, right. you know, who, who were completely exonerated and they were all minors they were all minors right. yes they're all minors uh, exactly so they're 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 such a pack of hypocrites when it comes to this issue it you know it boggles the mind you know um and along this point uh, since we've been talking about hawaii senators uh you know shots pointed out on twitter we need a more diverse bench because it's the same people from the ha- same high schools and law schools exactly. who are running a whole branch of government and it's not good for anybody except them yeah uh, and this is basically like the, the question here is are we finally going to hold the American aristocracy accountable for something? Looking like no. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, this is the thing is that we, there is a systemic aspect to this. You know, um, you know when you know, people use the phrase, oh, the system is rigged constantly, you know, and so it, it loses its meaning. But really the system is rigged if you have a certain class of people who go to the same schools, who end up you know, in the same halls of power, and who end up being able to make uh, decisions that affect all the rest of our lives. It's a very small, small, small pool of people. That's a structural problem, and that has to change. Uh, it, because it, it's they have effects, maximalist effects upon the rest of our lives. Uh, and I want to add also, if one lesson we should have learned, I, I've said this since, you know, for decades, I, it, it's emphasized even more so. It doesn't matter when you go to vote in a presidential election, the first thing that should be thinking that should be going through your mind is the Supreme Court, because we're living through it now, the consequences of not thinking about the effects of the Supreme Court when you make a presidential vote. At Hawaii, Delilah, ladies and gentlemen, she is bringing the heat. Uh, Delilah, would you mind sticking around uh, for just a few more minutes for a really brief shout out segment? For sure, for sure. Delilah Astralis, ladies and gentlemen, Blue Blue White Podcast. Shout out. Shout out time. What you got this week, Josh? Congratulations to Jägermeister on being named the official shot of the National Hockey League. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So uh, Jägermeister and hockey, two things that don't necessarily... Uh, get a lot of play here in Hawaii. Right, resonate with Hawaii culture. Sure. But, you know, in my time on the continent, I I can say I've enjoyed both of those things. Oh, good for you. Um, Yeah, so I, I like them both, and I think it's a good partnership. Well, shout out also to Miguel Aguilar of the LA Galaxy, who published his Dreamer story yes. in the Players' Tribune. Also, for another great Dreamer story, check out our July 4th episode with dear friend Shingai Messia. A wonderful, wonderful story of a man who has just overcome all odds and made a great life for himself here. Sports featured prominently, but was not the uh, overarching theme of his story. Uh, But back to Mr. Aguilar, uh, to take just one quote, he said, I believe that one day I will be an American citizen on paper, the same way I know I am an American in every other way. USA! USA! We're fully behind you, Mr. Aguilar. Now, speaking of Galaxy players, we just had to get Zlatan in here now. That'd be amazing. That would be amazing. 
He'd probably score 10 goals on the way in. <laughs> um, shout out. You only know. Hawaii Prep World article by Paul Honda. Uh, Iolani's Makiakau set state field goal mark by a girl. How far uh, was it? Check this out. Uh, Saturday night, uh, place kicker Mika Makiakau drilled three field goals, including a 44-yard blast. That is a long field goal. The, That's you, hard for an NFL kicker. The longest. It's not a sure thing. No. Definitely. We've seen it like last week's college game. I, I, believe, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. Um, well, the national mark for a girl is 48 yards. That is incredible. So she's almost there. That's she may get there. Incredible kick. Anyway, go Raiders one team. One team. Um, Delilah, do you have any shout outs you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I really, I just want to really thank my doctors as well as, you know, um, the nurses that took care of me this week because it was a really, it, you know, it was a really tough week, but I had um, very compassionate and caring and, um, and brilliant doctors and uh, nurses that I dealt with. And I am so grateful and I'll be grateful for the rest of my life. All right, Delilah. So one final question, and we ask this to everybody. We want your restaurant recommendation for Maui. Uh, I've been following you long enough to know that you eat out quite a bit. You uh, you sort of poke fun at yourself for uh, for not being much of a cook, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Perfect. So what I would love is if you could just give everybody a recommendation for if you wanted something casual, and then if you wanted to you know, kind of do it up big, where, where would you go? Okay. Well, I'm going to actually, I'm going to give you three. Because I want to mention one thing that's not really a restaurant, but it's it's what I do. So, um, you know, people who know me know that, you know, I work a lot on the mainland. And so I'm on long haul flights a lot across the Pacific. And when I get back, when I get back to Maui on the way home, because I live on the I live on the western part of Maui. When I get home, I stop by the fish market and it's the fish market on Loa Hanoa Pi'ilani Road. And um, and I stop there and I always get you know, I pick up my fresh fish uh, because grilling I can do, cooking I can't. But I also pick, but I also pick up oyster shooters, and there are lots of oyster shooters that you can get at really good restaurants all over Maui. Um, and great, enjoy them, have them. These are, you know, these are the the unvarnished kind of like unsexy, but they taste so good ones. They're succulent, they're tart, they're bracing cocktail sauce, nice clean finish. They're perfect. So I get a couple of those, and I take them home, and I have them at sunset. So I personally love oysters. When I was traveling for work a lot, I. I would travel all over the country and I would just get oysters like everywhere, DC, New York, LA, anywhere. Um, And I will tell you that Hawaii oysters are just probably some of the best I've ever had. Absolutely. And I, I'm so, I just, I love them. So I'm happy with this. Yes, absolutely. And so to, to sort of like expand upon that in terms of oysters, um, my one of my favorite spots for having oysters is Honu. And that's all, that's on Front Street in um, in Maui. So that's a good spot for that, for, for oysters. But also on Front, Front Street, probably my favorite restaurants is Mal- Mala Tavern. The, I would say cost-wise, it's not, it, you know, it's, it, it's, kind of middle of the roadish kind of thing. Um, there, there are all kinds of options there, but you, they have got this Avalon tuna and it is to die for. I really highly recommend that. They also, if you're a beef eater, they've got this Kobe beef burger. So again, when I'm going back to the mainland, I stop off there, I, I, I eat the burger, <laughs> you know, it's yummy goodness. I'm filled up and I'm happy. And, um, and, and you know, that's a good splurge for me. On the more expensive um, end of things, I've got to say that, you know, um, 
Merriman's is excellent. You know, this is like in the, this is Kapalua area uh, of Maui and it has amazing farm to table cuisine um, and an excellent cocktail menu as well. They really focus on local produce, um, raising meats locally and advocating for a healthier, more sustainable Hawaii. So I, you know, I would also recommend that as well. But, you know, I, you know, I, I also want to mention Monkey Pod because they have live music and they have more, more than, they've more than 30 beers on tap. So if you're a beer drinker, that's a good spot. <laughs> I don't think we have ever had somebody come so loaded for bear with restaurant wrecks. <laughs> um, you obviously eat very well on Maui. I got lots of um, options. Next time you're in town, we're going to have to take you out in Honolulu. Next up, Zippies. Well, we're going to do that. The next time I'm through, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I, I book the flight so it comes through Honolulu and then I'll hop on Hawaiian from Honolulu back to Maui. So it'll it'll be perfect. Well, thank you so much again, Delilah, for joining us. Uh, this has been awesome beyond belief. Uh, do you have any last words or any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? You know what? I am absolutely grateful that you had me on. I, I loved every moment of it. Love you guys. I really, really want all my followers to follow Blue Hawaii podcast because you know you're um, they're they're fabulous and wonderful so make sure that you follow them and um, in addition to that you know my final note is November everything everything hangs upon November we have to win there is no remedy outside of the ballot box and so that's what we have to do the damage that's been done in the last two years has been maximalist therefore the remedy has to be maximalist and we're not going to get to the remedy unless we're in power so you need to vote like your life depends upon it like democracy depends upon it because it does vote oh no a vote you oh no Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is at Hawaii Delilah, Miss Delilah Astorales. Um, thank you so much for being here, Delilah. Um, also, if you guys want to keep the conversation going, follow her at Hawaii Delilah on Twitter and follow us on Twitter too, at Blue Hawaii Pod. Tag like, share. Tag like, share. Uh, we're also on Instagram. Follow us there at the Blue Hawaii Podcast. Like us on Facebook. Invite your friends. Uh, and then rate us on iTunes. Review us, guys. That that stuff really, really helps. We're trying to grow. We're trying to get the word out. And we can't really do that without your support. We're showers, not growers. Also, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to be out of the country for the next two weeks. I'm going down down under. Down under. To Australia and New Zealand. That's uh, not a vacation. This is a vacation. <laughs> so uh, I will leave you in Ryan's good, stable, sturdy hands. As Mike Pence would say, the broad-shouldered leadership of my co-host, Ryan I, Little. I'm not sure about that. We'll, but we'll take you across the finish line to the promised land. I'm going to give my resolved look toward the future. Yeah, would you, you're going to be... You're going to be interrupting yourself? I'm going to be... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are going to hear a lot of me interrupting myself. What is the sound of one man interrupting? I, I don't know. This I have a, no this idea. This is a Zen koan for you to all think on for the next week before we come back. So, again... Thank you guys. Thank you to Delilah. Yes. Um, hey there, Delilah. Hey there, Hawaii Delilah. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Uh, Josh. I'm sure she's never heard that joke before. As we say in the islands, see you later <laughs> and uh, have a safe trip. Thanks. Blue Hawaii Pod. Blue Hawaii. Delilah, what's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. Times Square can shine as bright as you. I swear it's true. Hey there, Delilah, don't you worry about the distance. I'm right there if you get lonely. Give this song another listen. Close your eyes. 
Listen to my voice, it's my disguise I'm by your side Oh, it's what you do to me Oh, it's what you do to me What you do to me Hey there Delilah I know times are getting hard But just believe me girl Someday I'll pay the bills With this guitar We'll have it good We'll have the life we knew we would My word is good Hey there Delilah I've got so much left to say If every simple song I wrote to you Take your breath away, I'd write it all Even more in love with me, you'd fall We'd have it all Oh, it's what you do to me thousand miles seems pretty far But they've got planes and trains and cars I'd walk to you if I had no other way Our friends would all make fun of us And we'll just laugh along Because we know that none of them have felt this way Delilah, I can promise you That by the time we get through The world will never ever be the same And you're to blame Delilah, you be good and don't you miss me Two more years and you'll be done with school And I'll be making history like I do You'll know it's all because of you We can do whatever we want to Hey there, Delilah, here's to you This one's for you What you do to me